Welcome to Making Coffee, a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making one of the world's favorite beverages. I'm your host, Lucia Solis, a former winemaker turned coffee processing specialist. Thanks for joining this week's episode. Hi friends, welcome to episode 26. Today's episode ties into episode 25 because once again we will be looking at the relationship between coffee trees and their microbes. In episode 25, I told you about the slow, ghost-like fermentations in a California coffee farm. Then we talked about the important research by yeast genetic expert Dr. Amy Dudley. I think Dr. Dudley's work is important for the specialty coffee industry because her lab's research on yeast genetics and human migration shows us that humans have had a much larger role in shaping the industry, even when it comes to the so-called natural elements. Even the yeast that ferment the mucilage in coffee are not native to the plant. They are local yeast that were brought here by human activity. I think it's important to talk about the role humans have played because it's easy to gloss over or ignore entirely. I think one of the appealing parts of the specialty coffee industry is the connection to nature and the natural world. I think many are drawn to the lifestyle of traveling to coffee farms on sourcing trips, and even our marketing language is filled with lots of words like origin, natural, organic, bloom, and even fermentation. Many coffee purists believe the best coffee is made when the coffee tree is able to express the terroir. They believe in minimal processing, that above all, Mother Nature should shine through the cup. I've talked in previous episodes about how fundamental to the concept of terroir is the idea that human and microbial elements take a backseat to soil, geography, and climate. From the episodes last season, you've seen that people who think terroir comes only from the soil or geography or the climate are flat out wrong. Scientific studies do not support this. There is a scientifically proven connection that the fermentation microbes contribute greatly to the sensorial signature of the beverage. And we also saw in episode 25 that humans, not nature, have been inadvertently manipulating and changing the microbes since the coffee tree was taken from Ethiopia. I think many would like to draw a hard line between mother nature and human intervention, a line that neatly separates the natural elements like the coffee trees or the forest and the human elements like processing and roasting. But I argue that even in the natural world, humans have been interfering for much longer than we thought. At this point, scientific inquiry is not providing us with hard lines to further divide the world. The hard lines that make us feel comfortable are getting fuzzier. Instead of divisions, science is showing the interconnectedness of many things we once thought were separate. In episode 25, we saw that not only are humans responsible for the spread of coffee plants, but they also change the microbes for the fermentation. Which almost sounds like a statement that doesn't need to be said. It sounds really logical, right? If humans moved the plants, of course they brought the microbes too. It's like saying we brought the stems but forgot the leaves. Aren't they all part of the same thing? Aren't they a unit? But what we saw in Dr. Dudley's research is that the microbes her lab was mapping across 13 different countries were not from the original coffee plants. Colonizers moved coffee plants to new location and then new yeast, local yeast, also known as non-native yeast, also colonized the coffee fermentations. But the more interesting part is that the yeast are not exclusive to the new growing location. The yeast can move when the people move. 
The yeast responsible for fermentation are local to the people, not exclusively local to the physical location. This means that coffee is a crop of constant colonization, continuous colonization. Colonization of people, of new growing regions, and even local yeast continue to colonize the coffee plant itself when it moves to a new location. With Goodland Organics in California, we saw the importance of microbes by witnessing what happens in their absence. When the microbes needed for a fermentation don't come with the plants, it can take many years for new ones to colonize a coffee fermentation. It can take many years until the local yeast can take over. And until that happens, you will experience the ghost fermentations I mentioned earlier. Also, uh, by the way, a ghost fermentation is not a scientific term. It's a term that I completely made up to describe what I was seeing and the creepy feeling that it gave me. So please don't get excited about a new processing style. I really hope I don't see ghost fermentation on any coffee labels. All right, we good? Okay, moving on. This experience in California got me thinking about the other consequences of taking plants from their native environment. If science has proven that the original microbes needed for fermentation are left behind, what else do we leave behind? What other microbes don't follow the mother plant? For example, if the above ground microbes, the ones needed for fermentation, don't follow the plant, what hope is there for the microbes beneath the soil? Because even though we lump coffee microbes into yeast, bacteria, and fungi, the ones on the surface of fruits have a very different role than the microbes beneath the soil. The first book that got me thinking about microbes beneath the soil is a beautiful book called The Hidden Life of Trees by Peter Wolben. Peter is a forester who manages a forest of beech trees in Germany. His book was first published in English in 2016. And you guys know how I like to anthropomorphize yeast, meaning I describe and talk about them as if they were tiny people, as if they were my friends. Well, Peter takes trees to the next level with his book. As a forester, he has developed a deep understanding of the lives of trees, and he describes a forest like the kinds of enchanted wonderlands we find in cartoons and Disney movies, except he has decades of personal experience and research to back it up. One of my biggest takeaways from reading this book is how much trees depend on each other. One of my biggest shifts came when thinking about the oak tree. I thought I was familiar with oak trees because that's what wine barrels are made out of. I only thought of oaks when it came to their flavor. Some barrels are made from oak in French forests, and they have a very different effect on the wine than barrels made from oak grown in American forests. One very stressful part of my role as a knowledgeist at Opus One, the winery where I used to work, was organizing the annual cooper tasting. A cooper is a skilled craftsperson who constructs barrels. If you've never wondered much about wine barrels, I recommend checking out how a wooden barrel is made. I promise it's more involved than you think. I'll link a short video in the show notes. It's from this video that I learned that today, coopers spend three years in college and three years in an apprenticeship to make barrels and that many master coopers are fourth or fifth generation coopers. So next time you go to a winery and look in their cellar, or even just Google a picture of Opus One Barrel Room, and you'll see hundreds or thousands of barrels, whenever you see that, remember that each one of those barrels, each single one, was made by hand. It's common to think of a barrel as a single thing, as a, as a single unit, but it actually has a lot of 
individual components. So along the side, it takes up, I think, 26, give or take a couple individual staves that get stacked together. And then it's got two end pieces, so it's called the head. And all of that is held together by six to eight metal hoops. And that's it. It's just this metal holding this together. And it's something like 30 pieces that need to be fit, fitted together. And they don't nail the pieces in. There's no glue. Um, so it's, it's incredible that this barrel must be watertight just by the accuracy of the construction. And when you think about it, there are so many failure points. There are so many places that a barrel could leak. And this is why the skill of the cooper is really important. So a barrel holds 59 gallons of wine and is a common unit in winemaking. This is similar to how a bag is a common unit in coffee. Like a typical bag of green coffee is 69 kilograms. So one barrel can make 25 cases of wine. The current release of Opus One is $365 for a single bottle. When I worked there, the price was closer to 300 so I'll use that lower number for some very scary math coming up. So 25 cases turns out to be 300 bottles. Therefore, 300 bottles at $300 per bottle means that for this particular winery, a single barrel can hold $90,000 in potential profit. And one barrel weighs a bit over 100 pounds. But when it's filled with liquid, you add another 500 pounds. So each barrel is about 600 pounds and can hold almost $100,000 of wine. And when you move barrels, uh, they're they're often on barrel racks, and the barrel racks hold two barrels. So it's really rare to move one at a time. Usually when you need to work on the barrels, you're moving two at a time, or four at a time, or six at a time. And I've sometimes seen cellar workers who are very brave move eight at a time when, uh, when you're forklifting them around. So imagine being an intern on the forklift, and your job is to move full wine barrels. Honestly, it was the most nerve-wracking thing I had to do as an intern. Also, fun fact, at UC Davis, the university that I went to, part of the wine program is a class in tractor driving and forklift operation. So sometimes my classes would be, you know, chemistry labs where we were making up solutions, or I'd be in microbiology class, uh, microbiology class, in microbiology lab plating different microbes, and then I'd have to, like, get on my bike and run across campus and get to the fields to hop on a tractor or, or a forklift. But I will tell you, I never actually dropped a barrel. But when I worked at a different winery, I did witness someone else drop a barrel. It happens. Actually, not just a barrel. One time I saw an intern who was not so confident on the forklift, so he was driving it empty, so he wasn't carrying anything or holding anything in the forks. Uh, but I guess he missed the day in forklift class where they tell us that the number one rule is that you don't ever drive with your forks up. If your forklift is empty, the fork should be down on the ground. So I don't even remember why he was on the forklift. I think maybe he was practicing driving it so he could get more comfortable. Um, this is something I used to do too when we had dead space at the winery while we were waiting for the grapes to arrive. I would hang out in the parking lot and lift and move empty things from one side of the parking lot to the other side and then back. Um, but for some reason, this guy, this intern, wasn't in the parking lot. He was practicing, or I don't know, moving something um, in the winery. And as you're not supposed to do, he was driving with the forks up through the winery and he hit the door of a steel tank. And 
So when he, he passed this tank, the forks knocked the door of the tank off of its hinges, and it was like he broke a dam. The doors of wine tanks are usually located near the bottom, so they usually have several hundred gallons of wine pushing down from the top trying to come out of that door. And immediately, dark red wine started gushing out and running into the drain. It looked like he had hit like an artery of this like giant metal robot, and the robot was going to bleed out. So some of the cellar uh, workers, I mean, it was, a, it was a small place. So everybody heard the sound, everybody heard what had happened, and then we all rushed over. And some of the guys were trying to get the door back on its hinges. They were using their like entire body weight, bracing their shoulders against the door to slow down the flow. <laughs> it kind of looked like we were on a submarine and they were trying to prevent the water from getting in. But instead, uh, because we were at the winery, they were trying to stop the wine from coming out. So from all of the corners of the winery, we all stopped what we were doing, and then we just like came to help to do whatever whatever we could. So we grabbed buckets, we grabbed any clean containers that we could to save, uh, trying to catch as much much wine as we could to prevent it from going down going down the drain. It was like our ship was sinking, but instead of bailing water out of the ship, we filled buckets with we were filling our buckets with wine and saving like the, the very precious liquid. And after we had saved as much as we could, after we had run out of containers and the chaos had kind of died down, it looked like a massacre in the middle of the winery. We were all stained head to toe in dark red liquid. So this is usually a fireable offense, but the intern who did it was the owner's son. And it was an accident. And eventually one day in the future, he would be all of our bosses. So there was not much you can do there. Plus, you'd be surprised how often things like that can happen. Uh, wineries have to have a lot of insurance. I never drove a forklift into a tank, but I did manage to ruin 20,000 gallons of sparkling wine. But, oh, look at the time. I'm really getting off track. I'm going to have to confess my personal winemaking failures uh, some other time. I need to get back on track to oak trees. Okay, <laughs> this is what we're talking about today. Back to the flavor of oak. So... At the winery, the other winery, not the winery where this accident happened, but a different winery, uh, we had anywhere from 13 to 17 different cooperages that we worked with on any given year. So having different coopers or buying different barrels from different coopers is like having different spices in your kitchen. Each one adds something different and it's a way to add complexity and individual style to your wine profile. It's like, sure, everyone can make macaroni and cheese, but some people put truffle oil in theirs, or they put saffron, or some special kind of cheese. Like, each chef has a way to make the recipe their own. And in winemaking, this, this is often the role of barrels. So we would age the wine in, like I said, 13 to 17 different types of barrels. Some years it would be more, some years we would, you know, not like some, and then it would go down. And... All of this wine had to be kept separate for at least a year because then we would taste them side by side and see how the species of oak or the location of the forest and the individual skill of the cooper, uh, as well as the toast level, because um, barrels are toasted on the inside to give like a medium toast or a light toast or a heavy toast, um, how all of these different elements would impact the flavor of the wine. And I mentioned these tastings were important because it would impact the next year's buying decisions. And it would also give us some indication as to how the current vintage would be blended. 
In many wineries, oak barrels are bought new each year and used only once, sometimes twice. And so that's why sometimes you'll see on the bottle, you know, percentage of new oak versus once used or twice used. Anyway, we tasted all of the samples with every single cooper that we bought from, and many would come all the way from France to sit and taste with us. Not only did the coopers get to taste how their barrels paired with our wine, but they were also invited to the tasting to see how their barrel stacked up against their competitors. So they had a chance to taste how their barrel did with the wine and also how it ranked among the group. So that way, the following year, when the order increased by 100 barrels, or perhaps there was no order from us, they would not be so surprised. And a single barrel can be about $1,000, so a shift in the annual order of plus or minus 100 barrels can be pretty significant. It actually took me a while to understand this because before, before I knew how much the barrels cost or really looked into the orders, like the economics of it, I just thought it was so wild that these, um, these coopers would show up from France. They would fly all the way from France to California for this, like, I don't know, two-hour tasting, uh, and then they would kind of be on their way, and I just thought it was so wild that they would come all the way to do that, but when you're talking about a $100,000 order, uh, I could see why it's, it's important to, to maintain those relationships. So in the years where we bought from 17 different coopers, meaning we had 17 different types of oak, oak barrels, we tasted all 17 wines 17 different times, because again, we're, t- we're tasting with each of the coopers and these tastings were usually done over we had about two months to to put this together uh so and it would be the entire winemaking team as well as however many uh people the cooper decided to bring sometimes it would just be one person sometimes they would bring you know four people from their team it it really depended so it was 17 wines times, I'm going to average eight people per tasting, times 17 tastings is 2,312 glasses of wine to label and pour and wash. And something many people don't know is that winemaking involves a lot of cleaning. And what I didn't learn in my chemistry classes in college is that lab work ends up being like 50% washing dishes. So I had my like fancy winemaking degree, and for years after I graduated, I was still driving forklifts in parking lots, and I was chained to a dishwasher. Now, actually, all of this cleaning is one of the biggest differences that I've noticed in winemaking versus coffee processing. So for example, in a typical winemaking day, let's say it's eight hours long, you'd probably spend two hours before you did anything cleaning and sanitizing before you started you know, moving any wine or, or really doing anything to the wine. So then maybe you'd spend like six hours actually working on the wine, whether it was doing movements or racking or you know, putting it into a tank or whatever, topping off barrels. Um, and then after that, you'd have to stop two hours before the end of the day because you'd have to spend two more hours cleaning and sanitizing before you could really finish. So any given winemaking day is almost half spent cleaning. And in coffee processing, there's really not this culture of cleaning or sanitizing the workspace. And this is something that I think about a lot. And I think we should, I don't know, this probably needs to be its own episode because I'm already so far off on a tangent of a tangent. You guys, I'm sorry. Thanks for hanging in with me. I just noticed we're like 20 minutes in and we're not really to the point that I wanted to talk to you about because I'm just distracted telling you uh, wine disaster stories because um, this episode is not about wine. This episode is about oak trees and microbes. So sorry, let me get back to oak trees 
and coffee trees. When it came to oak trees, I used to think only about what trees do for me. Oak trees make the barrels that we use. Uh, and that was the whole point that I was trying to get to these 20 minutes was oak trees make the barrels that I use for winemaking. And that's you know what I thought about. That's all I knew about oak trees. Um, and I, I was trying to explain that I've spent years and, and you know months focused solely on oak and the different oaks that uh, were available to make these barrels. And I knew that oaks from different forests had different qualities. And I knew that those were things that we could taste. And I thought because I knew this, that I thought that that was an appreciation of oak trees. I, I really thought that they were incredible. But after reading the book, what I realized is that I didn't actually appreciate the trees because I was only thinking about what they do for me. And even when I expanded my thinking outside of, you know, building materials, outside of barrels, and I thought about, okay, well, what else do, do oak trees do? They provide shade, they provide fruit, they provide a home for birds and squirrels. Even then, I was still only looking at trees in terms of what they give to others. So I went from, okay, what can an oak tree do for me? And thinking I appreciated it. And then expanding to, this is what oak trees do for everybody else and other parts of nature. Um, but that's not really an appreciation. Until I read Peter's book. I had never thought about what trees want for themselves. Because like all living things, the trees have their own agenda. The full title of the book is The Hidden Life of Trees, What They Feel and How They Communicate, Discoveries from a Secret World. And the biggest takeaway for me about trees is that they were incredibly social creatures. Peter completely changed my thinking. I realized I wasn't thinking about trees or the forest in the right way at all. But Peter got me to think about it in a different way. So I used to think of the forest as a home for trees. I thought of a forest as, I don't know, a collection of where trees lived. But Peter got me to think about their connection to each other. Trees don't live in a forest. They are a forest. I know the distinction sounds really dumb and obvious, but just hang with me a little bit longer. I've talked about some trees on this podcast before. In last season, in episode 24, uh, one of the tea episodes, we talked about golden beauty, an oxidized oolong. This is the tea that is more valuable after the tree has been infected with insects. You can hear the whole story on that episode, but basically what happens is insects infect the tree and they start eating its leaves. This causes damage and the plant releases a specific enzyme to protect itself while at the same time sending extra stored sugar to the parts of the plant needed for recovery. The natural sweetness that develops is a direct byproduct of the plant's natural defenses. This aroma is meant to attract predators of the attacking leafhopper. So this tea that has this, you know, insect infestation that, that has been attacked is valued because it's very sweet. And the sweetness, this honey-like sweetness, is the tea tree's, you know, cry for help. It's, it's really calling for backup. And let's talk about the tea tree real quick. Camellia sinensis is a species of evergreen shrub. Uh, it's a small tree, and we make tea from its leaves, and sometimes, like I just did, we call it a tea tree. However, it should not be confused with tea tree, which is used to make essential oils and is found in many cosmetics. So, you know, tea tree oil cleansers, tea tree oil, you know, moisturizers, things like that. Camellia sinensis is native to Southeast Asia, and tea tree oil comes from the leaves of and. Please excuse my Latin, I'm just making an attempt here. Melaleuca alternifolia, 
which is a small tree native to Australia. So we've already seen on the podcast that trees have defense mechanisms, that they do have ways to defend themselves. And that means I also knew that individual trees communicated with insects through aroma. But to me, this seemed like a passive communication, passive the way that fragrant flowers attract bees. But this tea example was the first time that I had seen a different type of communication, an active, targeted communication. They were using aroma for defense. In Peter's book, he proposes that trees have a sense of taste because they know which insects are attacking them and they can match their distress signals accordingly to find the right predator. So what this means is that in the example of the, of the Camellia sinensis that is being attacked by these uh, leafhoppers, that the tree is responding in a way that attracts the predators of the leafhoppers. If there was a different predator, if there was a, sorry, a different attacker, a different insect attacking the tree, it would create a different compound. So this honey flavor that we get in the tea that is very desirable is because of that match of that particular leafhopper eating that particular tree and the tree responding in a way to you know, send up its, its signal, send up a flare to attract the predator of its predator. So this is already really, really cool. I think it's really cool that there is this relationship between trees and their insects and their defense mechanism. But even at this level, I was still thinking of the individual trees. I was thinking about how a single tree would survive when, when it is attacked. What I didn't know before reading this book is that trees can talk to each other, that they can communicate and pass signals, that they don't have to wait to be attacked to respond. They can be warned and act in advance of, uh, of an insect attack. Peter illustrates this with the acacia. This tree is the most recognizable in the Kalahari Desert and can grow to be 200 years old. And you don't get to be 200 years old without some tricks up your sleeve. For example, if a giraffe starts eating an African acacia, the tree releases a chemical signal in the form of ethylene gas into the air that signals that a threat is at hand. As a chemical drifts through the air and reaches the other trees, they, you know, smell it, basically, and, they, and are warned of the danger. So even before the giraffe reaches them, they can begin to produce toxic chemicals. They, they pump toxins into the leaves that make them bitter and unappetizing. And by the time the giraffe gets there, they don't like the taste and they sort of move on. Like the, you know, the giraffe is walking over, it takes a munch on the leaves, but the leaves are very bitter. And so it's not a tasty snack and the giraffe moves on and the tree is spared. So in this way, Peter proposes that trees have both a sense of taste because they can match the saliva of the insect that bites them and in response send out a chemical signal that attracts predators that feed on that particular leaf-eating insect. So that was the tea tree example. So they both have a sense of taste, but that trees can also have a sense of smell because they can pick up on aroma signals sent from other trees. But aroma signals rely on wind to disperse them, and the giraffes can outsmart the trees by going upwind or going far enough away that the warning gas has not arrived. Because, you know, giraffes can run much faster than, than uh, trees can send their scent sometimes. So trees cannot rely exclusively on communication above the ground. So what they do is they use an underground root network. Trees can also warn each other with chemical signals through the fungal networks in their root tips. 
So trees communicate through chemical signals and electrical signals, and these move at the speed of one-third of an inch per second. So it's slow, but again, it doesn't rely on wind. It works regardless of, of the weather. So once the first tree is you know, attacked by, by the first giraffe, and it can start to send out both its ethylene gas from its leaves, but it can also send a signal through its roots that it's being attacked. And then once the other trees can pick up on it, even the ones that are uh, you know, out of the, the wind pattern or maybe upwind from that other tree, those trees can still begin to pump bitter tannins into, into their veins and hopefully be spared. And this begs the question, if trees can send danger signals through their roots, what else can they send? Students at the Institute for Environmental Research at Aachen, Germany, discovered something amazing about photosynthesis in undisturbed beech forests. Each beech tree grows in a unique location and conditions can vary greatly in just a few yards. The soil can be stony or it can be loose. The, it can retain a great deal of water or almost no water, be very dry and sandy. It can be full of nutrients or it can be extremely barren. Accordingly, each tree experiences very different growing conditions. Therefore, each tree grows more quickly or more slowly and produces more or less sugar and wood. Thus, you would expect each tree to be photosynthesizing at a different rate. But the rate of photosynthesis is the same for all of these beech trees. The big, mature, strong trees in healthy soil with a crown full of leaves under bright light sunshine were photosynthesizing at the same rate as the skinny little young ones under the shade. So whether they are thick or thin, all members of the same species are using light to produce the same amount of sugar per leaf. This is bananas. This is not how photosynthesis is supposed to work. The way it usually works is if you have more leaves, you have more surface area for to photosynthesize. If you have you know, more sunshine, if you're not under shade, then you have more power for photosynthesis. So how were the little ones with fewer leaves and under the shade able to match the rate of the mature trees in the sunshine? So what the researchers found is that apparently these trees synchronize performance so that they all are equally successful. The trees themselves are equalizing differences between the strong and the weak members. And this equalization is taking place underground through the roots. Whichever tree has an abundance of sugar hands them over. Whoever is running short gets some help. Their enormous network acts as a gigantic redistribution mechanism. I was imagining the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, many voices yelling, buying, and selling stock. Because clearly, there is a lively exchange going on underground. So we know now that trees exchange news about insects and attacks and other dangers, and they also send each other sugar and nutrients. But what is this underground network? It's not just the roots that do this. It's the fungal connections that transmit signals from one tree to the next. Okay, real quick microbiology break, because... Sometimes even I get sloppy, and we tend to say yeast, bacteria, and fungi and make it seem like three separate things. But yeast are under the fungi umbrella because fungi is a kingdom. Unfortunately, the term fungus has a negative connotation, but Saccharomyces cerevisiae, the yeast that I talk about the most, the yeast responsible for wine and bread and beer, is a type of fungus. Mold is also a type of fungus. 
mushrooms are also a type of fungus. So all of that to say is I don't want you guys thinking that yeast and fungus are separate. And when we're talking about coffee fermentations, we are usually talking about the fungus called yeast. And when we're talking about underground connections, we are talking about another kind of fungus. For example, oak and pine tree roots are surrounded by ectomycorrhizal fungi, EM for short, that can build vast underground networks in their search for nutrients. Maple and cedar trees, by contrast, prefer arbuscular mycorrhizae, AM, which burrow directly into trees' root cells but form smaller soil webs. Do I think you should remember these names? Absolutely not. The point in sharing this is that at the very least, I just want you guys to know that scientists have identified different types of fungi that form relationships with tree roots, and they have been able to match tree species with fungi species. And in mapping, they also know about the size of the networks that they make, if they are big or small, and how far those networks can go. The other thing I do want you to know, which is wildly fascinating, is that one teaspoon of soil has miles of branching filaments, um, filaments that look like roots, but they're actually called hyphae. Imagine the length of many miles. And then imagine folding all of that space into a teaspoon. And then imagine expanding that out to how many teaspoons fit below the soil, fit below all of these trees. That is all of the space that trees have, their superhighway, to send signals to each other, to send and receive signals. This is a network that trees use to care for each other. It's how they send sugar and nutrients and warning signals to each other. It's their social network, and it's called the Wood Wide Web. No joke. This is not a term that I made up, like ghost fermentation. Ghost fermentation is 100% made up by me. I don't know, maybe other people have used it too. But Wood Wide Web is a real term, and it was coined by the journal Nature in 1997, based on the research by Dr. Simard. If you don't think you have time to read Peter's book, which I highly recommend because it's just... It's charming and lovely, um, but if you don't have time to read it, then at least check out a 20-minute TED Talk by Professor Simard, which will I'll have linked in the show notes. And this brings me to another point. I'm so happy to introduce another important woman in science. You already know about Dr. Amy Dudley, and now you will, I hope, get to know Dr. Suzanne Simard, because her research is fascinating. Anyway, remember the analogy that I mentioned earlier with the New York Stock Exchange? This is really a bad way to think about it. It's not like the New York Stock Exchange at all. Because the New York Stock Exchange trades based on money. Who has it, who doesn't. There are winners and losers. It's aggressive. What I found out is that trees do not operate like this. The Wood Wide Web does not trade based on money, but need. Whichever member is in need sends a signal for help. All members who have abundance will share their abundance. It operates more like a social security system operates in a community to ensure that individual members of a society don't fall too far behind. Because what scientists have documented is that trees will share resources with trees of the same species, for example, their family members, that is to say trees that came from their own seeds. And this is not surprising. But what is surprising is that trees will go so far as to nourish and feed a competitor tree. Initially, it was thought that maybe trees did this kind of sharing 
um, kind of on accident or, you know, not very thoughtfully, where if they just had an abundance of something, they would just send it out. Uh, but this is not the case. Trees are picky. They are choosing who they share their um, their nutrients with. Because scientists at the University of Turin proved that trees can distinguish their own roots from other species, and they can also tell the difference between their relatives and their non-relatives. And there is a hierarchy. If they have an abundance of sugar or water or nutrients, they first make sure that their family is healthy and taken care of. And then they will share their abundance with the rest of the forest, including so-called competitors. So there's a thoughtfulness behind this sharing of of resources. So why would trees do this? What kind of survival strategy includes protecting your competitors? Why don't trees subscribe to the more common strategy, the one we humans use, which is survival of the fittest? You are the weakest link. Goodbye. What I have learned is that that strategy only works if you don't plan to live very long. Survival of the fittest works when you plan to live a short life. But trees live hundreds or thousands of years. If you want to live a long life, it's wise to look out for everyone. A single tree is at the mercy of strong winds and extreme weather. But together, trees create an ecosystem that moderates extremes of heat and cold. Together, trees can establish a consistent local climate. So maybe the weather is inconsistent outside and the, the you know grander scheme and things, but under the canopy of the trees, the temperature and humidity swings are less extreme. Together, trees can also store great deals of water and generate a great deal of humidity. In this protected environment, trees live to be very old. Do you guys remember March of the Penguins? It was a 2005 nature documentary about emperor penguins in Antarctica. If you haven't seen it, I recommend it. It was lovely and beautiful and just super sweet. But in case you haven't seen it, um, basically the female lays a single egg and she transfers it to the feet of the waiting male. The female goes off in search of food and the male penguin stays on the ice caring for the egg for several months. I also really like this reminder from, from nature that our gender roles are societally constructed. There are examples of animals, like penguins, where the female goes off to hunt and provide for the family, and the males are the caretakers who stay behind and take care of the egg. Anyway, for two months, the males endure temperatures approaching negative 62 Celsius, or negative 80 Fahrenheit. The intense cold could kill the developing embryo, and they are completely exposed on the ice. I mean, imagine Antarctica. They don't have access to shelter, right? There's no trees that they can hide underneath, and they can't make their own shelter. There's not material where they could build something to protect themselves. And because they don't have access to shelter, and they can't make their own shelter, they have to act as each other's shelter. The male penguins huddle as close together as possible and create a circle. Inside the circle, the penguins near the center are the ones that are the warmest and protected while the others on the outside form a penguin shield with their backs and take the brunt of the cold and the wind. And then after a while, the circle starts to move around and they switch so that everyone gets a turn staying warm and everyone gets a turn protecting the group. The survival of any one of them depends on the survival of every single member. There is no survival of the fittest, only survival of all. And also, they're doing 
all of this very carefully and very slowly because on top of their feet is their single egg. And they're starving because they don't eat for two whole months while the, the mom, by, while the female, is out getting food. So they just spend their time shifting and protecting each other until the women get back. Sorry, until the females get back. If a tree wants to live to be a thousand years old, its survival depends on the whole forest. According to trees, even the so-called weak members need to be saved and protected. The trees cannot rotate like the penguins do, but the principle still holds. The forest must protect all members, even the weak ones. If the forest were to lose a weak member, it would leave gaps in the canopy. An intact forest, like a group of penguins huddled together, can withstand strong winds. But if there are gaps and holes, the strong winds can get in and break branches or uproot entire trees. Gaps put the whole community at risk. If a weak tree is lost, that leaves a gap for the strong winds to uproot other trees, but it also leaves a gap for wind and hot sun to be able to penetrate the forest floor, and this can start to disrupt the cool, moist climate, and it starts disrupting this, you know, very careful equilibrium that the trees are creating, this, this environment underneath the canopy. And this is why weak trees are important. When a tree is weak, this is why it gets support from other trees trees of the same kind, or even trees of different species. Also, like the penguins, the trees take turns caring for each other. Maybe for a few decades, you're the strong one, giving out all of your extra stores. But if you're going to live to be 300 years old, at some point, something will happen where you might get sick and need help from the other members. Maybe you lose some branches. Maybe a woodpecker tries to make a home in you and damages your bark. Maybe you get an insect infestation that eats all your leaves and you can't photosynthesize and feed yourself anymore. If the strong tree hadn't taken its extra stores to help the weaker ones, then at this point when it was in trouble, there would be no one around to help it. But fortunately, the tree was sharing and helping the weaker members, and over the decades, by helping them stay alive, they became strong trees, and now those trees are able to help the formerly strong tree through their illness, and that way, they take turns caring for each other. Peter talks about what he calls tree friendships, where a pair of trees will be so connected that if something ever happens to one and it dies, its otherwise healthy companion will die too. Like old lovers who have lived their whole lives together and then die within a few days of each other. In humans, we call it dying of a broken heart. Broken heart syndrome, also called stress-induced cardiomyopathy, happens when part of your heart temporarily enlarges and doesn't pump well, while the rest of your heart functions normally or even with more forceful contractions. On the surface, it can look like a heart attack, but unlike a heart attack, there is no evidence of blocked heart arteries in broken heart syndrome. In contrast to this, Peter gave another example in his forest of beech trees where he found a group of trees taking care of a stump. The stump had no trunk, therefore no leaves, and the inside had completely rotted out, meaning it had been cut down four to 500 years earlier. The tree was cut down. The stump should have been dead, but underneath the bark, it was still green. There was still chlorophyll. There was still life, which meant that for at least several hundreds of years, the other trees were pumping sugar to keep it alive, like a lifeline. For all of those hundreds of years, they did not abandon this stump. Can you imagine embodying that philosophy? 
the philosophy that if you have a lot of something, like a lot of resources, the best thing to do is not to hoard it, but to redistribute it, because then every individual can benefit. Can you imagine the philosophy of thinking that every individual member of a society is needed, and that if you have the resources, it's in your best interest to help? Not for charity, but because helping them means you're helping yourself too? Can you imagine the philosophy that no one in the community is disposable? I thought it was natural to be selfish. I thought it was natural for a species to want to hoard resources. But the trees have taught me that it can also be natural to share, that long-term survival depends on giving away what we have in abundance. Maybe you think this is just a story and it has nothing to do with you. Or maybe you're wondering what this has to do with coffee. Let me recap a few points we've covered so far. Number one, trees communicate with electrical impulses and chemical signals that mimic our sense of smell and taste. Two, trees need the forest to create a microclimate where they can be protected and survive for a long time. Three, isolated trees have much shorter lives and get diseases more quickly. A tree alone will die much earlier than a tree with a community. This is already a bit of a long episode, so I thought it would be a good moment to take a break, stretch your legs, take a breath, grab some water, uh, because, you know, almost 45 minutes in, I'm going to finally get to the point of um, today's episode, what I really wanted to talk to you about. But I I really felt like I needed to go through that um, background to explain why this is consuming my thoughts uh, recently. So now I want to go a little deeper into the topic of disease and how trees get sick. The model I had in my head of how this happens is first there is a random event, say a swarm of aphids lands on the trees. You know, mother nature is unpredictable. Oh no, they start attacking a tree. And I thought if a tree is strong, it will fight off the attack and defend itself. Kind of like what we saw earlier, where it will release certain chemicals. Um, And then it is a a battle of the wits between the tree and the giraffe or the trees and the aphids. Um, But if a tree is weak, it will not be able to survive and it may succumb to sickness and then potentially uh, eventually death. So the order of operations I had were, one, the tree is attacked and then two, it is weakened. But that is not exactly what scientists have found. Instead of the idea that insects randomly attack trees and then make them sick, what they have found is that insects seek out already weakened trees. So the insects didn't make them sick. The insects targeted already weak trees. But how did they get to be weakened in the first place? Researchers believe that trees are weakened when they lose the connection underground. When they are unplugged from the wood wide web, they are not able to be warned of an incoming attack and pump tannins or toxins. They are not prepared for the attack. They cannot defend themselves. And then after the attack, the loss of the fungal network also means that they can't get help from the community to get strong and healthy again. They can't get their nutrients and sugar boosts. Here is the scenario proposed by scientists that insects can listen to trees' urgent chemical warnings and then test the trees that don't pass the message on by taking a bite out of their leaves or bark. 
They can test a few trees with small bites and then find the tree that didn't get the warning message from the other trees. A tree's silence could be because of its loss of a fungal network or perhaps it already has a serious illness. The insects find the silent trees and then the caterpillars and the beetles can have a feast. I know we usually go into nature for peace and quiet, but as we've seen now, microbial silence in the fermentation and microbial silence underground are detrimental. They are signs that things are not working as they should be working. And now we get to why this matters in coffee. In the industry, we spend a lot of time romanticizing the coffee tree and coffee forests, but just like we saw in the example of the California coffee farm, when you introduce a new plant into a new growing environment, all its important luggage doesn't come with it. So what else are we leaving behind when we introduce new varieties? I want to read you a passage from the book. In the symbiotic community of a forest, it's possible that all plant species communicate this way, and not just the trees, but also the shrubs and grasses. These are loud places full of signals and exchanges, news passing back and forth, nutrients passing back and forth. However, when we step into farm fields, the vegetation becomes very quiet. Thanks to selective breeding, our cultivated plants have, for the most part, lost their ability to communicate above or below ground. Isolated by their silence, they are easy prey for insect pests. The research that this information comes from is based on cultivated corn. I'm not aware that the research has been done on coffee plants specifically. But we can imagine that what has been applied to selective breeding for a seed that we eat, corn, could also apply to coffee, which is another seed that we consume that has had selective breeding. And you can see how this selective breeding can go hand in hand with disease, can't you? And to be clear, I'm not talking about GMOs, genetically modified organisms. I'm not talking about genetic modification at that level. I'm talking about selective breeding. This is just choosing characteristics that we like. This is what we've been, what humans have been doing, changing our environment since the beginning. We're choosing the plants with the prettiest looking fruit or the best tasting fruit. But what's important about this is that we are choosing characteristics that nature hasn't developed yet. We choose traits to make a cultivar bigger, have higher yields, or have sweeter berries, or be redder in color. We do what nature hasn't done yet. And it's like building a big billboard for pests. It's like this neon flashing lights to pests that this is something that they should pay attention to. It's like, I just imagine pests are flying through like a desolate Nevada, you know, desert. And suddenly you just come upon Las Vegas with its shining bright lights and they're just immediately drawn in. So with selective breeding, we're really doing two things. We are selecting for something that nature hasn't selected for herself, and we're also necessarily cutting off a plant from its fungal network. So we select for characteristics we like, and we also remove the plant's ability to protect itself and to stay healthy. And we know this. We know the plants are weak. Modern agriculture uses so many pesticides. And I think many of us, I know I have, have just sort of taken it for granted that this is normal, that it's the way that it's always been, that pests are just part of the, the equation. But I hadn't really considered how much our selective breeding invites this into the equation. Pests and coffee are not a random monster. 
When we fight pests and cultivated crops, we are not fighting Mother Nature. This is an enemy we created. When we fight pests, we are fighting ourselves. If coffee producers had to choose, I think many producers would rather have a disease-resistant coffee plant over a flavorful one. But as consumers, we usually don't see this. We just want new varieties, new flavors. We keep pushing the boundaries of flavor and also try to breed disease resistance into the plant. Well, I think maybe we've been looking at it backwards. Instead of building a fortress around your house to keep it safe, maybe you could spend that money you're using on barbed wire fences, guard dogs, and security cameras and use it to make the neighborhood a friendly place where there is less incentive to steal. Everything that I've mentioned in this episode so far, all of the cool ways that trees protect and help each other, the intricate fungal networks, those only develop in undisturbed forests, not in planted forests, not even in planted forests that are old. These networks take a long time to develop. For example, let's look at the giant redwood trees. In their homeland in California, they are true giants. Picture the Statue of Liberty. She is quite tall. She is 305 feet tall. The tallest tree in the world is the coastal redwood in Humboldt County, and it's 365 feet tall. Can you just take a moment with me and just be so awed and so impressed that this living organism, this living organism today that you can visit, is taller than the Statue of Liberty, a man-made structure? So you can imagine that a redwood is quite impressive and politicians and princes would take these redwoods over to Europe as exotic trophies. We call them giant redwoods, but in Europe, they don't grow particularly tall. They grow to be about less than half the height in California, about 160 feet. Why are they so short? Yes, they are younger, but they are already at least 150 years old and the enormous diameter often exceeds 8 feet uh, measured at chest height, so clearly they know how to grow. They just seem to be putting their energy into growing in the wrong direction. They're growing fat instead of tall. The location gives us a clue as to why this might be the case. They were often planted in city parks. What is missing, above all, is not age, it's not conditions, it's the forest, or more specifically, relatives. This tree is usually all alone. But what about other trees in the park? Don't they form something kind of like a forest? Couldn't the other trees act as surrogate parents? Normally, yes, because we saw that trees will help and nourish even their competitors if they're in the same ecosystem. But this doesn't work in planted forest because the problem with planted forests is that they usually would have been planted at the same time. For the system to work, there need to be very old trees to take care of the young trees. The old trees have the resources and the wisdom and the strength. The network doesn't work when everyone is the same age and therefore has no wisdom to offer. The redwoods in Europe have to fend for themselves. They'll never get to be the majestic creatures we see in California. We have robbed them of their future so that we could have a trophy. One more thing about the difference between planted and undisturbed forests. The Japanese have been practicing shinrin-yoku, forest bathing, for
for a long time, and it's recently gotten more popular as Westerners are interested in unplugging from their technology and going into the woods for a health boost. I know it sounds really weird, but in 2017, scientists have started to look at what happens to humans when we walk through a forest. So they hooked up participants and measured their blood pressure. When the participants walked in undisturbed forests, systolic and diastolic blood pressure in the forest environment was significantly lower than that of the non-forest environment. So scientists could measure that our bodies were reacting to the forest. People's blood pressure went down. They reported feeling better. Okay, big deal. You've probably felt this effect yourself. You feel better in a beautiful forest compared to a crowded city street. But what's cool is that this feeling can be measured. But what's even cooler and super fascinating is that in other studies, they wanted to really drill down into what it was about nature that helped people feel calm. So they compared different kinds of nature to each other. When they compared the blood pressure of people walking through an undisturbed forest, again, their blood pressure went down. But when they were walking through a cultivated forest or a planted forest, there was very little change. And for some people, their blood pressure actually went up. Some people got more tense. Clearly not as tense as being on a crowded city street, But what it shows is that the body could tell a difference between the planted and the undisturbed forests. So planted forests don't have the same beneficial effect on people. And they weren't just looking at blood pressure. They were also measuring hormone levels. So they measured uh, adrenaline and noradrenaline levels. And these are indicators of autonomic nervous activity. And their reduction suggests that the sympathetic nerve activity is reduced. So maybe you guys have heard of the parasympathetic and sympathetic system. Parasympathetic is the rest and digest. That's your chill. And your sympathetic is your um, kind of stress-activated uh, part of your nervous system. And this review, which is available on Patreon if you want to read it, the entire thing yourself, suggests that autonomic nervous system plays an important role in the regulation of blood pressure. So again, what does this all mean and why should you care? What I think is important is that some people are sensitive enough to feel a difference between being in a planted forest and an undisturbed forest. And not only is it just their subjective experience of feeling more calm or less calm, but the fact that science can and scientists can measure that level, that we can quantify that discomfort or relaxation. However, scientists still don't know how or why people can pick up on the differences. Some of the studies suggest that we can pick up on the silence, the lack of activity in the fungal network, that we can sense that the environment is somehow off. Like when you just have a bad feeling about something and you don't know why, but you just feel like something is wrong or like you just need to, you know, get out of of a certain situation. Because undisturbed forests work together, but planted forests don't know how to work together and many trees suffer in isolation. So Maybe something about being in that environment, your, your intuition, something about our bodies can just pick up on this, you know, discordant environment. But the second suggestion I actually find even more disturbing. And the second suggestion, some of the literature of the, the conclusion that the scientists come to, is that perhaps it's not the silence that we pick up, but the distress call of the trees. Because planted forests are artificial and the trees are screaming for help. They send out distress signals, and for those who can hear them, it's not a relaxing place to be. 
Perhaps the connections, the fungal network connections, could develop over time in these planted forests if they were left undisturbed. The old forests, the undisturbed forests that Peter talks about, are hundreds or thousands of years old. Our coffee forests are not. Even the older ones do not have trees that are 200 years old. Coffee trees' productivity, their life, is much shorter. So I'm not even sure they have a chance to develop these, you know, intricate friendships and connections before they are ripped out and another tree is planted, let's say, 20 years later. To be clear, I am not a geneticist or a researcher. I did not study agroforestry. And most of the research we are talking about has been done on large trees, not small coffee trees. So I can't tell you with any certainty that this is exactly what's going on in coffee farms. Everything I shared with you applies to trees that live a long time. And maybe it's not relevant to trees who have short lives like coffee. Maybe the comparison shouldn't even be made, but I can't get it out of my head. The idea of silent fermentations and silent forests, about the high use of pesticides and cultivated crops. I keep thinking about the things that we leave behind when we take something from its native environment. I want to leave you with a quote from Tim Flannery, an Australian paleontologist who wrote, Perhaps the saddest plants of all are those we have enslaved in our agricultural systems. They seem to have lost the ability to communicate and are isolated by their silence. Usually, I like to take you guys into a journey to the micro world to get really tiny and look at yeast and molecules, look at things really close. But in these episodes, I felt the need to zoom out really far. Zoom out in space and time. Zoom out to see entire cultures. Zoom out to see entire forests and communities. Zoom out to see the consequences. If we're going to have a brighter coffee future, we need to see the whole picture. This series is not done. There is yet another thing I believe we leave behind when we take a plant to a new environment, but it'll have to wait for another episode because this is already a long one. Uh, So I'm going to wrap it up. On Patreon, you can find the couple of research papers that I talked about the most for this episode. Um, You can find the one about the Wood Wide Web and then also blood pressure measurements in forest if you would like to read the papers yourself and then reference them. And thank you to the patrons who make it possible for me to carve out time each week to make these episodes and have them available for everybody else. If you see coffee in a different way after listening, consider joining with the link in the show notes and help me make more episodes. If you enjoy listening and get value out of these episodes, please share with a friend who loves coffee or wine or trees. If you want to be notified when the next episode is coming out, consider subscribing to my free and infrequent newsletter at lucia.coffee. Lucia is spelled L-U-X-I-A. Thanks for listening, and remember, life's too short to drink bad coffee.